This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. For us to take away, we are in the series of the four E's to a healthy church, which is engaging people, evangelizing, establishing ourselves in God's word and equipping for service. So today we are in the last of the series, and after this we are jumping into a very emotional book on Psalms, where the heart cries out, and how our hearts are engaged in the raw emotions of Psalms, but that we read it through the eyes of God's King. So today let us begin by committing ourselves to the Lord, and we will come to Ephesians 4. Please pray with me. Oh Father, we thank you for... Um, such a wide range of way that uh, you write in different genres and letters and narrative and history and songs and wisdom. That God, every time we come to your word, nevertheless, we learn about you and we learn about ourselves. So this afternoon we pray, God, that you engage our minds as we look at your word, that you engage our hearts and transform it to love you more and that you strengthen our hands that we will do um, what you will ask to do by the power of your Spirit. Amen. Now, before I got married, uh, I, I remember reading a wise advice given to husbands-to-be, and they said this, never buy practical gifts for your wife on their special occasions. So you can get them flowers or teddy bears or, to occupy the house and mess it up, but don't buy them vacuum cleaners uh, on their birthdays. You can get them spa vouchers, but don't get them NTUC vouchers. You can buy them platinum edition of novels to enrich their imaginations. But don't buy them cookbooks to improve their cooking skills. Well, I actually failed on the last one terribly. Because I've, on so many accounts, bought my wife cookbooks after cookbooks on Christmas, uh, on birthdays. And from what I understand, I'm still married after more than a decade. My wife still loves me, and, uh, and I'm enjoying good food. No, I, I bought cookbooks for my wife, not because her cooking is terrible. I, I love her cooking, and I'm always back home when I can to eat. But the very fact is that she loves cookbooks. She loves to read it, I bought it for her. And also, in sharing a meal together as a family, it is wonderful. Because in this time of family... Um, Eating of dinner or lunch, it nourishes us, it keeps us growing, it provides a platform for emotional and spiritual engagement for all who are at the table. And as we eat, we get to know each other better, we learn to love each other more, and we learn to unite as a family. Now, this illustration might totally fail for you if your wife hates it, if you're going to buy cooking books, so don't take it from me that it's going to work for you. But now, how is this illustration related to what we are looking at this afternoon. Well, today's passage is really about the giving of gifts and the use of gifts to build God's family in unity. Before we look at the passage in Ephesians 4, verse 7 to 13, let me first paint the the background of this letter to the Ephesians. Now, this letter to the Ephesians is a letter for Christ's church filled with all kinds of of people, people who are previously unrelated, but have now become a family in Christ. A, a family that's built not on birth or by descent, but by the grace of Christ Jesus. 
and the variety within the church in the early Christianity was most clearly seen by the Jews and the Gentiles meeting together and sharing a meal. Jews who uh, could trace the promise of God uh, to, in His covenant to Abraham, to Moses, to, to David. And when Christ comes, they receive it. But then you have the Jews, the Gentiles, who had never heard of anything about God. And until Paul arrives and shared the gospel, they came to embrace it. And because of that, both of them have become a family to the surprise of the Jews. Now this letter of Ephesians is a beautiful letter because it speaks about the grace of God that brings peace vertically between humanity and God and peace between humanity from Christians to Christians horizontally. This is a beautiful letter about how God's grace actually reconciles us to God and how God's grace unites us together. The letter of Ephesians, it paints the identity of what Christ has done for us and who we are in Christ. And it also calls us to be who we are in Christ, especially in our unity with each other. So when we read Ephesians, and if you do read Ephesians, it's quite a neat book. Half the, half the book, half the letter, three chapters, it speaks about what God has done. And the other half, next, the next three chapters speaks about what we should do in light of what Christ has done. So I've got this little picture there. This is how you could look at Ephesians. And as we come to the second half of Ephesians today, which is from Ephesians 4, verse 7 to 16, Paul is actually peering into the church and speaking about Christ giving gifts to his people in order that they may serve and build up the church that they already are. And Paul starts verse 7. If you have your outline, it would be great to look at the, verse, the, the passage with me. Paul starts verse 7 with the word but to bring our attention to this because in verse 1 to 6, before this verse, Paul says this, you know what, as a church, you are one body, we are one spirit in Christ, we are one hope, we are one Lord, we are one faith, we are one baptism. You know what, we even have one God and Father of all. And then the but came in, but you know what? In the midst of our unity, there's diversity within the church. There's diversity in gifts. And no doubt, every single one of us who comes to believe in Jesus have received gifts to build His church. But they may look just different. This afternoon, we look at three aspects of Christ's gifts. The first is gifts from, God, from Christ's victory from 7 to 10, verse 7 to 10. The second is gifts for the church's equipping from verses 11 to 12, 12a. And the last is gift of service for the unity and maturity of the church from verses 12 to 13. So this is the outline. You have it in your bulletin. And uh, let me invite you to jump in on the first point on the gifts from Christ's victory. Look at verse 7 to 10 with me. Now, Paul writes this in verse 7 to 8. Let me read to you. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. That is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. Now, the word grace, you know, as in many parts of the Bible, comes to mean something that God has kind of given us, unmerited, is something that we should never have received, but we have. 
such as the gift of salvation. So you say grace, people, we, we often can't think of salvation. In fact, Paul spoke about this in the first part of Ephesians. In Ephesians 2.8, he says this, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourself, it's a gift of God. So this famous verse in Ephesians 2.8 tells us and calls grace as a gift of salvation through the works of Christ done for us. But now, as we come to the second part of Ephesians, and here in chapter 4, verse 7, the grace that Paul speaks about is the grace, is the gift of service that we are given to build up his church, which we previously do not have. Now, the late Jerry Bridges, he described this grace this way. He says this, This grace is as the ability given by Christ and empowered by the Holy Spirit to serve the body of Christ. This grace is the ability given by Christ and empowered by the Holy Spirit to serve the body of Christ. This Christ-given, Spirit-empowered ability can be very diverse and may not always seem spectacular, but they are ultimately used to build up Christ's church. And this grace may also be of different degree. As Paul mentions, grace is given as Christ, a portion it. Like part of a healthy body, we serve in diverse way, with diverse degree, in order that we may grow up in a healthy, mature body with Christ as our head. And there is no comparison when you talk about this gift because Christ apportioned it. That's the share that we have. There is nothing to boast about and there's nothing to compare with to say I've got a better deal or I've got more gifts because it's as Christ apportioned it and no envy or pride comes in to this gift. Only the call to be faithful to what Christ has given us. Now before I jump in to what this grace gift actually looks like in practice, I want to invite us to first look at how this grace gift is made available to us. In the next five minutes, uh, I'll look at how Christ is actually able to give us this gift. And it's a little bit tricky, so I might need your brain muscles a little bit for five minutes as we look at this. Because whenever somebody quotes an Old Testament, we need some muscles to um, look at it uh, together. So look at verse 8 to 10 as Paul describes this grace as gift from Christ. He quotes from Psalm 68 as a reminder of victory that was from Christ, that was in Christ. Now, Paul quotes Psalm 68, verse 18. This way is interesting. Look at it. Let me just read to you Psalm 68, verse 18. It says, When you ascended on high, you took many captives. You received gifts from people. Now, Psalm 68, verse 18, is actually speaking about Yahweh God. He's speaking about a God who has victory, God who has ascended on a high, and as he did his victory march, God took captives and he received gifts from people. But now as you come to Ephesians 4, Paul in quoting Psalms, he changed the word a little bit. He changed the word from receiving gifts to giving gifts. As Paul refers to Psalm 68 verse 18, to Christ's victory, he writes that, you know what, Christ has victory, he took many captives, and then he gave gifts to the people. Look at verse 8. When he ascended on a high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. Now why does Paul quote Psalms 68? Why did he use the word give instead of receiving? 
there's a lot of debate on this and trying to understand this. Well, some theologian helpfully points it out that you no, know, when a king is victorious, he rightfully received everything as his possessions, captives as well as gifts. Yet after receiving everything that rightly belongs to him, the generous king distributes gifts back to his people. Consider an event that happens in Old Testament back in Numbers. This is what God actually said to Aaron. He said this, just after the Exodus, right? He says this, I myself have selected your fellow Levites from among the Israelites as a gift to you, dedicated to the Lord to do the work at the tent of meeting. The whole of Israel at that time is God's possession after God was victorious over the Egyptians and all the enemies. And from amongst his possession, God selected the Levites as a gift to Aaron, or in a way as a gift to the people, to do the work at the tent of meeting. The, the Levites belongs to God, but the Levites have also become a gift to God's people when they live out their roles. Now if we see Psalm 68 verse 16 in, in, in light of this, then the captives, when he's speaking about Yahweh having captives in his victory, it's not about captives of foes, but captives of people whom he has now taken as his own. And after he receives his spoils, he gives gifts to his people in order for them to serve him faithfully. So when Paul quotes Psalm 68 verse 18, he's really pointing out that Christ, who has become victorious, took many captives, and these captives are us. And we have become spoils of his victory, and he grants us gifts in his victory. Now, Jesus himself said this about his own victory back in the Gospel account in Luke 11, 21, 22. He says this, When the strong man, that is the evil one, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger, he's talking about himself, attacks and overpowers him, he, Jesus, takes away the armor in which the man trusts and divides up his plunder. So after Jesus has taken many captives for himself, which is what the first half of Ephesians is talking about as well, what Christ has done, Christ now has the authority to give gifts to his people. Now how did Christ become victorious? We kind of are familiar with the story, but Paul just wants to point out and remind us using verse 9 and 10 about Jesus' incarnation. He says, Christ first descend to the lower earthly region. He came from heaven to earth as human with flesh, with which he overcomes enemies and rescues us from himself. And after he becomes victorious through his death and resurrection, verse 10, Jesus ascends higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Now, while Christ's incarnation that's born in flesh to rescue us is important, the, the whole point at the end of the day is this, that Paul wants to focus here is that it is really that Christ, having risen above all things, enables him to now give gifts for the sake of building up his church. He has the authority to apportion grace to you and me as he sees best. Now that's, that's probably the most difficult part of today's passage to kind of think through and work through. The, the focus really is that Christ has um, risen and he has the authority to give gifts. And you can contend a bit more on verse 8 and 9 and read out a bit more if you have kind of different thoughts and um, I leave it for us to think a bit on that. But that's the main point for um, 
the, the code that he has. But now coming back to the easier part that the gifts for the church equipping from verses 11 to 12. Now having developed how Christ is able to give us gifts or grace, uh, which Jerry Bridges helpfully defined as the ability given by Christ and empowered by the Holy Spirit to serve, Paul now zooms in to one specific category of gifts, namely the pastoral or the word ministry. Now for various reasons, from kind of skilled theology, history, or just following the ways of the world, it's easy to kind of mis- be misled that Paul is kind of saying, no, no, there are some better gifts than others, and these are the better ones. Or there's hierarchy within Christianity. I'd like to consider um, this possibility that people might have, or this misconception about those who are doing pastoral and word ministry, so that we can appreciate as we move on what Paul really is saying in verse 11 about the gifts of the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. So I just want to walk us through uh, a, a common misconception. I shall call it the hello effect misconception. The hello effect misconception. So this, this is, um, misconception is, works this way, that Christians, sometimes they put hellos over the head of their Christian leaders. It could be bishops, missionaries, pastors, teachers, full-time workers, and of course the apostles, and the prophets. And some Christians think that their leaders, well, perhaps they're holier because they speak and explain God's word, or they have greater immunity to sin, or they have greater access to God, so if the pastor prays, is more powerful, or greater ability to access um, God's power. Now, this hello effect misconception assumes that there are kind of layers of Christianity. The greater the saints, uh, the greater saints than kind of everyone else. Uh, well, there are specific gifts for sure, but there are no hello effects when it comes to uh, Christian leaders or even your word ministers. Now someone may ask, you know, how about Hebrews, 11, Hebrews 13 verse 17? It says this, you know, have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority. Isn't that the same as you know, the CEO that we need to submit? Is it true? Well, you know, it, in one sense it's true that there's certain expectation that the church should submit to the authority of the leaders, but the reason is not because Christian leaders have a halo over their heads. The reason is because they have a specific role to function, which is verse 11, to equip Christ's people for the works of service. Verse 12, Christ has given gifts to each of us as he apportioned it. Now, we, we can be very general to define this gifts of service in, in two ways. One, it could be the, the words of service. The other is the, the works of service. In fact, Apostle Peter writes it this way. Let me just read to you from 1 Peter 4, verse 10 and 11. Peter says this, Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. So Paul, back in Ephesians 4.11, um, is really um, zooming in on the word ministry here. And most likely it is because by the proclaiming of God's word and by the watching over the church, all the other gifts can be carried out well and used to build up the church. Now we no longer have historical apostles, 
or prophets who are eyewitness of Christ or have received direct revelation. But we have evangelists, we have pastor teachers who still dishes out the word of life to God's people, equip them for the works of service. But how does the word ministry equip other works of service? How does the word minister reveals or equips and strengthens the others to serve? Now, I'll give you an example. Suppose some of you, and I'm sure in today's congregation, some of you are very gifted in music, in singing, and um, your tone deaf kind of word minister is not going to try to teach you how to sing or teach you how to play the musical instrument and teach you how to kind of um, create the flow and everything. Kind of that is totally not going to work. But through faithful teaching of God's word, musicians get equipped theologically to choose the best songs that are rich in truth that when congregation sings, they are actually singing sermons or singing words from the Bible that strengthens them and builds them up and gets them equipped even while they are singing. But the opposite is true when musicians who are really talented but they choose songs that do not have truth or have half-truth, you're going to confuse the congregation. So what the word ministers does is to equip not in terms of your skill sets, but that the truth will always be underlying all that you are serving God for. In the same way, kind of regular faithful teaching by missionaries and pastors, teachers, what, what they do is they equip every believer with the full counsel of God's word. They don't have a pet topic. They don't just talk about certain things that kind of the cultural um, popular topics, but they give you the full counsel of God so that in working out the gospel, the counsel of God, we are able to work out our privilege and our responsibility of serving rightly. And as the pastor teacher takes pain to kind of care for the church and their well-being, they will continue in fruitful ministry. And by the way, just now I was quoting Hebrews 13, 17. I actually quoted half the verse for you. There's always a danger where your pastor kind of quotes half a verse. But let me give you the full verse of Hebrews 13, 17. This is what it says to deal with the halo effect. Hebrews 13, 17. Have confidence in your leaders. Submit to their authority. And the reason? Because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy and not a burden, for that will be of no benefit for you. So, so, so the interaction between the, the pastor's teachers and, and the rest of the members so that they have to give account as under-shepherd to Christ and they are meant to take care of you so that you can take care of them and we can grow together. And you kind of go head on with them, both of you kind of suffer and the church doesn't really get built up. I'm not saying heresies, but I'm saying when they are teaching God's word that you, you receive God's word and kind of grow together. Because that is their responsibility as well as ours to listen. And this is where there is no variety of various degrees of Christianity. And that's why the word ministry is here. And now as we look at Ephesians 4 verse 12, listen to the three kind of prepositional phrases that, that what the word ministers uh, are heading towards with the rest of the church. They are to be given to equip the church the church to be equipped for to, for work of service. And why is that? 
for the purpose of building Christ's church. So who will build the church? It's actually everyone. All of us with our various gifts. Now we come to the third point as we, we listen to this now. So that's great, but no, what do our gifts actually look like if it's not just word ministry? How do we actually exercise the gift of service for unity and maturity? That's where we look at verses 12 and 13 again. In fact, let me read verse 12 to 13 for us again and we'll look and unpack it. Verse 12, To equip His people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Now we are all given gifts to build up Christ's church and we must not miss out Paul's emphasis back in verse 7 and now in verse 12 that Christ has given not just to some of us but to all of us so that we can build up His church. Now I want to help us to think of another misconception that can come along in terms of service which I shall call it, some of them are called to ministry misconception. Okay, or called into ministry misconception. Well, some of us can put it rightly that that was just narrowing on word ministry. But often, and in many Christian circles, that's not the case. The misconception means that only some individual Christians are selected to do service for God or to do ministry. The rest of the church just need to attend church once a week or be obligated to give financially and anything that needs to be done should be done perhaps by the pastors or those who are paid to do the job. You know, it's the pastor's job to preach, to evangelize, to run choir, to, to welcome new people, to perhaps be the janitor. In fact, there's some old Chinese pastors of the previous generation who joke about this. They said this, that they were both the sinless high priests the administer Holy Communion. But after service, they're also the janitor that cleans up the toilet when everyone leaves the hall. Now church, it's, it's kind of a, I don't know about hygiene, but that looks a bit interesting, isn't it? Church was very much a spiritual cinema in these churches that people come and uh, attend as consumers. And I'm so thankful that's not the case in BTPC, um, that church is not a kind of spiritual cinema for us, but a family this gathering to be equipped for service. Because Paul is clear that we need everyone to be involved in building up Christ's church. But now someone may ask this, right? So Andrew, what is, what is my gift? What is Paul saying is my gift? Now, I, I think Paul intentionally leaves the work of service to be general here. He mentions the various ways of serving and relating to each other in all his letters, um, but here he leaves it as general. But the words of Philippians that Paul says is probably a good um, passage to underline the attitude of serving. He says this in Philippians 2, verse 2 to 3. Let me read to you. Paul says this, now, Having the same love, being one in the spirit and of one mind, do nothing of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, each of you to the interests of the others. In, in making it general, it gives us plenty of freedom to serve and to build up Christ's church. Our service may mean 
in areas we are kind of good at, such as music, finance, administration, hospitality, serving in a God-glorifying, other-centered manner that builds up the church. No, it, it, it's, it's probably more edifying to have a God-loving, others-caring, gifted musician or singer leading the songs every Sunday than to get a pastor who's kind of tone-deaf leading the songs every Sunday. Even if he preaches well, that is good. People are going to turn up at like half an hour after the service starts just to skip singing. So perhaps it is good that we can use what God has given as talents to serve or those with good who are good with hospitality, who are good at making people feel welcome, to, to invite people just for, for lunch after service or dinner, a place to let them feel welcome and also to engage in the gospel better. We can build up God's church with areas that we are talented at. But having said that, there may also be occasions where we serve and build the church best, not by using what we are talented with, but to serve in areas that is most desperately in need. I remember when I was back in university, that's kind of a few years back, <laughs> in two digits, that a, f- a friend joked about how she came back and she was joking to me. He said, you know what? Hey, I saw a finance lecturer on, on Sunday. It's kind of comical. He was perspiring all over in his church kappa trying to direct people and being hornet. And, and, and as I listened, I was like, yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Well, Perhaps he could have better served the church um, doing finance. <laughs> He's a finance professor. Or perhaps not. Perhaps he can better build Christ's church by serving in areas that have greater needs than greater prominence. There are many occasions where the smartest brains finds himself or herself washing dishes in the kitchen or serving at afternoon tea so that others actually have the chance to carry on conversation with visitors because it's not always the smart person who does it. Uh, and I've seen that happen, and it results in maturity in, in church. Now, for example, when a visiting young Christian from overseas to another place realized that that person was kind of washing dishes and throwing rubbish quietly and busy doing his work, that old man is actually the acting principal of the Bible college, or perhaps the dean of medicine in the circular university. And those students who come in with great vision about being great doctors their response as they learn from it is that, you know what, I'm, they're not going to say, when I grow up, I'm going to be the greatest doctor with the most written books. But he may say, or she may say, when I'm 70, I hope I'm serving God's people just like them. Do you see how that actually does build up? I'm not saying it always is this case, but in various ways, when we are serving God, others get built up. Or perhaps it is exercising the gifts or the grace of encouragement to the discouraged, patience to some of our children, kindness to the visitors who are misfit, self-control in conversations, loving those who are kind of ignored most weeks, partnering missionaries, generosity for the gospel and to the needy. The, the, the range and the opportunities is white, and Christ has given us gifts for that. Now, there are many ways we can exercise the grace of Christ, um, as, as which Christ has gifted us, and none of us are lacking in the grace to serve. You know, as we, we kind of walk through briefly, you realize that none of us are lacked of the grace 
to serve and build up the church. Even someone who is sick, who is suffering, but who is persevering, uh, builds up the church, or someone who is unwell, that the rest will learn to exercise the gifts of care for the person. And that builds up the church. Now finally, verse 13 starts to describe this building of Christ's church in three ways, or roughly three ways. Let me just put it to you. The first is this in verse 13. Until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Again, the focus on our building up is on unity. But here, the unity is specific on faith and knowledge of Christ. Now, we are to stand firm on the same foundation of the gospel. We will not be arguing about the fundamentals or ignore what the scripture says that we should behave as the body of Christ. And this happens through our continual serving of each other. And this is also our final destination that we can only achieve collectively. And this being the direction we are heading also gives us a sense of this already and not yet kind of situation. We have already received the gifts. We are already the Church of Christ. But we are not yet complete. We are still waiting for Christ, the head, to kind of finally receive us and perfect us. So in the meantime, while we're heading towards this perfection, we continue to work our service, continue to build each other up. Now the second aspect, there's kind of a progression here, is also this maturity. Paul says to become mature, that we continue to grow in maturity. And this maturity is not kind of the world's way of being kind of street smart or being um, good with things, but rather is to grow more and more in Christ and like Him. Now that we are in Christ, we grow to become more matured people in Christ. We are ultimately kind of rescued. In, in, in the first part of Ephesians, we are ultimately rescued to be under Christ in, with the rest of creation. And we start by growing in this way here. Because when He comes, the church are His. And we start learning to build up the way that He calls us as a body. Now, the, the third one, or kind of second one, depends on how you mix the last two, is this attaining to the full measure, the, the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Now, remember what the letter of Ephesians is about when I give kind of a brief overview. The first half tells us who we are in Christ. The second half tells us to be who we are. We are to live out the unity in Christ. We are to grow up in our maturity, in our faith, in our knowledge, in our sharing of Christ, and also really in our Christ-likeness. You know, the late Jerry Bridges, he's, he's, a very important, he's made a big impact in a lot of Christians' life, in his works and his pastoral care, his role model. He said this when he was 79 years old. He said this, 79-year-old Jerry Bridges says, When I grow up, I want to be more like Christ. He's saying that as he is continuing in his Life, he's trying to grow up, he's to become more and more like Christ. At 79, he says, you know, when I grow up, I want to be more like Christ. I think that's a great encouragement for us who are not 79 or probably in our 20s or 30s or um, 40s, 50s, <laughs> a bit more. Whatever age we are, that, that is the goal, that we continue to grow to be like Christ. Because when Christ comes, we want to say, ah, 
I'm a bit like you, but there's more for me to enjoy. What a beautiful way to think of the fullness of Christ as a church. Now remember my, as I close, remember my earlier illustration about my wife's gifts of cooking and our joy of eating dinner together. Well, I have my share of gifts. It's kind of the willingness to wash dishes because I can't really cook. And my children's growing gift of helping to lay the table or at least try to take the fork and spoon and put it on the table uh, before dinner and take their plates back. Now, not all our gifts of building the family look spectacular in the world's eyes. But all of our gifts builds up the church of our Lord Jesus Christ more and more. And as we use the grace that He gives us, the more we become like our Lord Jesus Christ. And as later Ephesians passage will add on, that we will also be able to stand firm against deceptions and against the ways of the world that we will look like Christ and not like the world. And being in Christ, we as a body, joined together and held together by every supporting ligament, we grow and build ourselves in love as each of us does our work. Let me just pray for us. Father, we just thank you so much for Ephesians 4. Thank you so much that Christ is victorious and He grants all of us the grace to be able to build up this church that you have already won when you came in flesh. So Father, we pray as a church, as we seek to grow in health, as a church, as we engage with people, as we try to evangelize, as we try to establish ourselves in your word, as we seek to equip ourselves more and more, that God, we will grow to be faithful and grow in expectation. Christ to come, that we will see the one that we have been wanting to look like. In Jesus' name, Amen. This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening.